Uh, for the next few weeks, we're entering into a new collection called The Story of God. And it's all about making sense of our story by looking to the story of God. And so from Genesis all the way to Revelation, we're going to go throughout the entire story of the Bible together. And as we do that, we pray that it would give you so much clarity and understanding about how you are to live out your story here and now. Now, if you remember last year, we did a collection on scripture and we talked about this thing called story authority. When we talk about the authority of scripture in our lives, we're not talking about approaching the Bible as a rule book to blindly obey, but as a story that God is sweeping us up into. Um, And N.T. Wright once said, story authority, as Jesus knew only too well, is the only authority that really works. Throw a rule book at people's head or offer them a list of doctrines and they can duck or avoid it or simply disagree and go away. Tell them a story, though, and you invite them to come into a different world. You invite them to share a worldview or better still, a God view. Stories determine how people see themselves and how they see the world. Stories determine how they experience God and the world and themselves and others. Great revolutionary movements have told stories about the past and present and future. They have invited people to see themselves in that light, and people's lives have been changed. If that happens at a merely human level, how much more when it is God himself, the creator, breathing through his word? See, each of us, are writing a story with our lives. You know, Donald Miller, another person that I really look up to, said a story is based on what people think is important. So when we live a story, we are telling people around us what we think is important. In other words, the story we're writing with our lives testifies to what we hold most important in our hearts. I want to ask you, church, when people look at your life, What do they see is the most important thing? Is it your career? Is it your reputation? Is it your fame? Is it your relationship? You know, Donald Miller also goes on to say, if you watched a movie about a guy who wanted a Volvo and worked for years to get it, you wouldn't cry at the end when he drove off the lot testing the windshield wipers. You wouldn't tell your friends you saw a beautiful movie or go home and put a record on to think about the story you'd seen. The truth is, you wouldn't remember that movie a week later, except you'd feel robbed and want your money back. Nobody cries at the end of a movie about a guy who wants a Volvo. But we spend years actually living those stories and expect our lives to be meaningful. The truth is, if what we choose to do with our lives won't make a story meaningful, it won't make a life meaningful either. Wow. Listen, I don't know about you, but I want to live a meaningful story. I want to live a story worth telling, worth remembering. And I want to propose that the only way that we can live those kind of stories is if we look to the great author and finisher of our faith, of our story. Theologian Mike Erie said, We think of the Bible as a record of humanity's search for God. But the truth is precisely the opposite. It's a record of his pursuit of us. The Bible begins and ends with God. He is at the center of the universe. We are not. This is his story, and our stories find their proper place in his. If we hope to live out our stories well, 
we have to understand the grand story that our stories are intertwined into. We have to understand the story of God. And so in this collection, we're going to approach the story of God through a framework by N.T. Wright. So N.T. Wright describes the story of a Bible as a five-act play. And so imagine that you're sitting in a theater and you're watching a five-act play, and he's likening the story of God to this five-act play. And this is how he breaks it up. Act one, creation. Act two, the fall. Act three, Israel. Act four, Jesus. And act five, the church. Now, we in our modern day age, we live in act five. But notice that most of act five is actually missing. I mean, we have the beginning scenes in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And then we have the ending scene in Revelation. But we live in the in-between. And so we are actors in Act 5, living out the rest of the story. And all we really have to go off is the beginning scene and the end scene of Act 5. And so we're like actors where it is our job to act out the missing parts of Act 5 based on what's come before us and what we know is coming after us. But here's the beautiful thing of of approaching the Bible this way, of uh, approaching the story of God this way. The beautiful thing is that God doesn't give us a script to act out line by line robotically. But he gives us the freedom to act out this scene with creativity and innovation as long as it's consistent with what's come before and what's coming after. Now, I shared this illustration during our collection last year, but the Star Wars fandom is extremely divided. And their most, um, their most recent criticism of the recent Star Wars sequel films is that the new movies don't honor the canon. They don't honor what's come before. And so they, th- they say things like, Luke wouldn't go into exile like that. That's out of his character. He wouldn't throw the lightsaber away. You know, that's not how the force works. They're making up all these new powers. The new storyline undoes everything that our heroes fought for in the first few episodes. And so what they're basically saying is the way that you're telling the story now doesn't line up with what's come before it. It doesn't line up with canon. You see, the job of an actor later in the story is to step into the story and live based on what's come before and in light of the end. And so we in the middle, in Act 5, have freedom and creativity to live out the scene. But we must have the responsibility to honor the canon. In other words, what's come before and what's coming after. And so this is the beauty of approaching the story of God as a story instead of a rule book. We're not living stiff, robotic lives, trying to follow this exhaustive list of rules. Instead, we get to live out our story with both continuity and creativity. And so today, we're going to begin this collection by starting at the very beginning, Act 1, Creation. But first, let me open us up in a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here today. We thank you for who you are. I pray that you would open our hearts to this beautiful story that you have weaved throughout history and in scripture. And would you show us and help us make sense of our own stories in light of what's come before us. We love you. We honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to ask you a question, and you can throw it up in the chat if you have an answer. But what's one of your favorite opening scenes of a film? 
You know, maybe you'll think of famous, critically acclaimed opening scenes like The Dark Knight, where Joker does that high scene, that really cool one. Maybe you'll think of The Lion King, right? The circle of life, this epic scene that's setting up Simba, Mufasa, and the kingdom. Maybe you think of, you know, I'm a huge horror movie fan. You think of Scream, right? What's your favorite movie? That whole scene playing out. But one of my favorite opening scenes of all time is from a movie by Pixar called Up. Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about. The opening scene of Up is one of the best opening scenes of all time. After watching the first few minutes, first of all, you'll need a bunch of tissues to wipe away the tears and the snots from getting invested in the story. But after watching the first few minutes of the movie, you're already emotionally invested in Carl in the characters. You're immediately caught up into the story. You know the motivations of the main characters. You're invested in their journey. You care. In other words, the first act is meant to sweep us up into the story. And so if you don't know anything about how the story began, there's nothing that happens afterwards that will carry any meaning or significance for you. So we have to start at the very beginning. And we have to understand it holistically, what the story is trying to set up. And so if we want to make sense of the greater story of God and our story within it, we have to start at the very beginning. So we're going to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. I know we've covered this Uh, passage many times together before, but I really want us to have a firm grasp and understanding about what God is trying to tell us through this chapter. And so this is how it begins. This is the very first verse of of the story of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, it's, it's kind of sad to me that a majority of the conversations that happened about Genesis revolve around questions like, is this literal or is it allegorical? Was it seven-day creation or was it thousands of years? What about evolution? Were Adam and Eve real historical figures or figurative representations of the first humanoids? We have all these questions and we get stuck on the how. But we have to consider the author's intent. You know, I think if you pick up the Lord of the Rings books, I don't think J.R. Tolkien meant for you to read the Lord of the Rings books to get ready for your world history exam, right? We have to consider the author's intent. The author wasn't writing a scientific explanation detailing creation and how the universe began. In, In other words, he wasn't trying to answer how. He was writing to answer why. And so when we look at Genesis, we should be reading to understand why God created the world and everything in it instead of focusing so much on how. You see, we see when we read Genesis that God had a dream from the very beginning, a deep desire expressed in creation. And that's what we're going to look for today as we go through the rest of Genesis. Now pay attention. In the beginning, it says the earth was formless and dark and empty. Now, despite the words that are used in the translation, a more accurate description might have been chaotic. 
that it was full of darkness and chaos. In fact, many theologians actually don't think the earth was empty at all. They actually liken it to a battlefield of ruins after this great war between God and the armies of the devil. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about that more later. But one of the things that we'll see throughout this story is this theme that wherever there is darkness or chaos or emptiness, that God is about to do something. And so he's about to bring forth new life, new creation. He's about to step in and shine forth his light. And this is really encouraging for us because, listen, if you're experiencing any darkness, if you're experiencing any chaos in your life, you can trust that the Spirit of God is there hovering as he was hovering over the dark of the waters before creation. And in the moments where you see emptiness, you can trust that God is about to fill it. In the moments where you see darkness, you could trust that God is just about to step in and shine his light. And so to this darkness and chaos... The very beginning of the story starts with God saying, let there be light. And there was light. And then afterwards, he says, let there be day and night. He creates land and sea, vegetation, the trees, the flowers. He creates the sun and the moon and the stars, the creatures on the ground, in the sea and in the sky. And God saw it and he said it was good. And then we get to the sixth day. God creates man. I want us to look at Genesis 1, 27 through 28. We're fast forwarding a little bit. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And if we jump to Genesis 2, 7, giving us a more detailed account of God creating man, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. I want you to pay attention here. Everything else that God creates, he speaks into existence. Let there be light, bam, right? Let there be seas, bam. Let there be night and day, bam, bam. But when it comes to man, he gets down on the ground. He pushes his hands into the dirt and forms them. He creates them in his own image and likeness. He bestows his image upon them. He breathes into their nostrils the breath of his life, his ruach. He gives them his most precious gift, his spirit, his essence. And this is the cherry on top. With everything else God creates in creation, he says, it was good. But when he creates man, he says, it was very, very good. Kind of like when Fig, you know, we're, we're hanging out with other dogs, like maybe Nana and Sumi. I'll say, oh, you guys are good boy, good girl. But when I, when I go to Fig, I whisper, but you're a very good boy. God's saying he has favorites in creation. There's, there's an intimacy with which he created humanity. And so when we look at God's creation of humanity, it radiates 
intimacy. I mean, what does it say about a God who's willing to get down in the dirt of our lives to meet us? What does it say about a God who's willing to get his hands dirty to form us? What does it say about a God who's willing to give us his most precious gift, his spirit, his essence, his ruach? What does it say about a God who gives us his image? See, why did God create humanity? God's dream from the very beginning of time was to have a people to call his own, a people that he would be in intimate relationship with, a people where he would love and they would love him back. And we forget that we were created as humans before we became disciples of Jesus, meaning there is a human mandate, a a purpose, a reason for our existence that goes beyond doing things for the kingdom, doing things for God, meaning that our first and primary reason for existence Why God created us was simply to be loved by him, to be in relationship with him, to be in a loving and intimate fellowship with him as Adam was in the very beginning. You know, Fig right now is sitting on the couch right there. And sometimes when I look at Fig, I mean, I just think he's one of the most pathetic creatures in all of existence. I mean, he literally adds no you know, value to our house. He can't do a single thing. He can't carry the groceries. He can't help us pay the bills. He is very cute. That's the one thing he has going for him. But I think, why do we have Fig when sometimes we're working and he's getting in the way and he's bothering us? Why, why do we have him? It's because we love him. And for no other purpose or reason than simply to love him and to receive affection back from him does he exist in the Cho house. Actually, he does a, a few things around the house, like take out the garbage, but that's another point. What I'm trying to say is that our reason for existence, God's dream from the very beginning, was to be in fellowship with us, to walk in intimacy and relationship with humanity. And so this might be hard for some of you type threes out there. If you're an Enneagram type three, that even understanding, even if you didn't accomplish a single significant thing in your life, you would still be walking out your purpose and your reason for existence by walking with God and being in relationship with him. God's dream is to walk in fellowship with us. Now it goes on in Genesis 2.18, watch this. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so because it was not good for Adam to be alone, God creates Eve, the first woman. Now, this is the first mention of anything in all of creation in the story of the Bible as, as being not good. And that's really significant. And it tells us this. God's dream, yes, was to be in intimate relationship with his people. But also that his people would be in intimate relationship with one another. How powerful is that? He's saying the first mention of not good is when man is alone. And we'll see this theme play out again and again in the story to come. That God starts with one man. But what happens? From that one man, he forms a nation. He birds a people to be his own. The greatest commandments Jesus gives, what? The first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. But what's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God during his lifetime here on earth, during his three-year ministry. But what happens after he leaves? He empowers the church 
to release the kingdom here on earth. You see, God's dream wasn't just for us to walk in fellowship with him, but for us to walk in intimate fellowship and relationship with one another, that it is not good for us to be alone. In other words, we were not just made for God. We were made for one another. If we were in the church building, I would have you guys look at each other and say, I was made for you. You were made for me. Listen, when you show up for community groups, you are fulfilling God's dream. When you encourage one another and pray for one another, you are fulfilling God's dream. When you forgive one another, you are fulfilling God's dream. Listen, how powerful is that? That even in our cultivating of community, we are fulfilling the dream of God laid out from the very beginning in Genesis. I feel so sorry for believers who carry this. It's just me and God approach towards life. They never get rooted in a faith community. They never get vulnerable and allow themselves to be seen and know they never offer their gifts to a local church and they miss out on a key part of God's original dream. You were made for community. If you hope to live your story well, you can't do it alone. In fact, I would say if, if your dreams can be accomplished without the help of God or without the help of others, it's not big enough. And so we see that God's dream was to be an intimate relationship with us and for us to be an intimate relationship with one another. I want to pay attention to the ending verse of, of that passage. It says, the Bible says they were both naked and felt no shame. Imagine being in a community where you have 0% fear of rejection, where you can be completely yourself, flaws and weaknesses and all, and not carry a single ounce of fear that you won't be loved or accepted. Imagine where you have no insecurities about who you are and what you can offer. No imposter syndrome. You don't have to wear a mask or play a part, but you have a freedom to be you and a freedom to be loved and a freedom to love others. Doesn't that sound amazing? That is God's dream for his people. That is God's dream for his church. That is God's dream for our community 99. This is what we're trying to cultivate here in this house, God's dream for fellowship with him and God's dream for intimate relationship with one another. Now, I want to pay attention. There's another thing that, that we see here. The passage says that we were made in his likeness. Why is this significant? Now, theologian J. Richard Middleton says it is the claim of Genesis 1 that God granted a royal priestly identity as Imago Dei to all humanity. Whereas power in the Babylonian and Assyrian empires were concentrated in the hands of a few, power in Genesis 1 is diffused or shared. No longer is the image of God applied only to a privileged elite. Rather, all human beings, male and female, are created as God's royal stewards, entrusted with the privileged task of ruling on God's behalf. The democratizing of the Imago Dei in Genesis 1 constitutes an implicit critique of the entire royal and priestly structure of ancient Mesopotamian society. What's, what's he saying? What's all this about? This was revolutionary 
for all those who are reading Genesis throughout early civilization, that God would bestow his image, his likeness upon man. It was countercultural to the power structures that they had in play, even in their understanding of the gods, that gods created humanity to serve them, to serve their every whim and fancy and desire. But here, the Yahweh, the God of Israel, and as recorded in Genesis, God created mankind not to be his servants, but to be his co-laborers, to be co-creators that he empowered to cultivate the world together with. A people not working for him, but a people working with him. And so when God gave us his image, he was sharing with us the privilege and the authority of ruling the earth together. You see, God wanted a people to love, a people who would love one another, and a people who would cultivate the earth together with him. And so when we say we're made in the image of God, it's God sharing his divinity with us. It's God democratizing his power and his authority and giving us the role as co-laborers of cultivating this earth with him. And all of that can be captured in this one word, shalom. I think shalom, we think of the word peace, but it means so much more. Dr. Gary Brashear says, a community, this is how he defines shalom, a community where all relationships with God, others, self, and the rest of creation are all well-ordered and flourishing as God designed it. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It's the webbing together of God, humans, and all of creation. It's justice and peace in every facet of creation. It's perfect harmony throughout every thread of the universe. This is shalom, and this is what God is after. This is God's dream. Shalom between God and his people. Shalom between his people and one another. And shalom between God, his people, and all of creation. Perfect harmony, wholeness, and peace. Come on, doesn't that sound amazing? Don't we need shalom in our world today? Christopher Wright, he says this, The trouble is that some Christians seem to have Bibles that begin at Genesis 3 and end at Revelation 20. They know all about sin from the story of the fall, and they know that God has solved the sin problem through Christ and that they will be safe on the great day of judgment. The story of creation for them is no more than a backdrop for the story of salvation. And the Bible's grand climax speaks to them only of going to heaven when they die, even though the last chapters of the Bible say nothing about us going anywhere, but eagerly anticipating God coming here. We can't skip over Genesis 1 and 2. I know we, whenever we talk about creation, we jump to the fall. But no, we have to understand the opening scene, the setup. We have to understand God's dream. And this is why we have to look and understand the Genesis narrative, the opening scene of all of creation, that our, our eternal destiny is not up in the clouds in the heavenly realms. The earth is not some hopeless wasteland that we're going to abandon one day when we go to heaven. 
But no, it's right here on earth where Jesus is coming back to establish his new Jerusalem, a place where God's original dream will be realized. A a, a people who will have a face-to-face intimate relationship with God, a people who will love and belong to one another with justice and peace, and a people who will cultivate creation to flourish, a place where there will be no more weeping and pain or injustice, a place where we will look and see that it is good. Eden, our garden city. A place of shalom. This is the why. This is God's dream in his heart. Is that we would see this dream realized. And as actors in act five of the story of God, this is what we're after. This is what we're trying to reconnect with. This is the story that we're called to write in our lives, to recapture Eden. An intimate relationship with God, our maker. An intimate relationships with one another. And to be agents of shalom. Shalom whenever we see broken relationships. Shalom whenever we see injustice or inequity. Shalom whenever we see darkness and chaos. I'll end with this quote by Donald Miller. It says, once you live a good story, you get a taste for a kind of meaning in life, and you can't go back to being normal. You can't go back to meaningless scenes stitched together by the forgettable thread of wasted time. How different would our stories look if we connected it to the greatest story of all? I don't know about you, but I want to live a meaningful story. I want to live a story worth telling. I mean, if they were to make a movie of my life, I want to tell a story that would inspire, that would draw people near to God. Listen, what would 99 look like if we lived out a story, communing with our creator, loving one another, and what if we carried and released God's shalom throughout the earth, what would it look like if we, we would be a church so intimately intertwined into the story of God? I hope as we continue in this collection that that becomes a greater and greater reality in our lives. And as we look to and understand the story of God as we continue, I pray that our stories would be so swept up into his and that our lives would bear a story worth telling. This is the dream. Let's pray. God, I don't know if I did a good job expressing your heart and your dream and the why of you, of why you created creation, why you created us, why you created the world. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would awaken us to the truth and the reality that from the very beginning, you longed for a people to call your own. You longed for a people that would love you and that would receive your love. You longed for a people that would love one another as you love us. And you longed for a people that would cultivate this world with you, that would be agents of your shalom, releasing your peace, releasing your justice, releasing your love and your joy and all the good things of your kingdom. And I pray that we living in our time right now, in the middle of Act 5, that we would reconnect with the story of all stories, that we would reconnect with the story of God so that our stories 
would be meaningful. So that our stories would represent you well. And so God, as we begin this journey of exploring the story of God, I pray that you would open our hearts. You would give us a vision. And just like an opening scene of the movie, would our hearts be so invested in living out your story well. We love you. We honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.